Why should I be frightened of dying? See no reason for it. You better go sometimes. Hello, welcome to the Sam Reads Near Death Experiences podcast. Hello to all the new listeners out there. Thank you for checking me out. Um, so today, uh, this near near death experience comes from a man named Jeffrey. Um, this happened in uh, nineteen eighty nine, so it's it's about uh, thirty years ago. Um, and Jeffrey was in a very dark place, and uh, he attempted suicide by uh, swallowing a bunch of pills and and an entire bottle of rum. Um, and he has a hellish near-death experience. Um, I wanted to read a hellish near-death experience because it is part of the near-death experience phenomena, although it is more rare. Um, but I thought it was important to acknowledge it and to uh, read it so people are, are, I don't know, aware of it in a way that... Um, there is a dark element to near-death experiences, particularly when it seems like someone is in a very dark place um, while they're alive. It seems like, you know, some of these folks were, I mean, I've read several, but um, it seems like they're in hell when they have their experience, like uh, when they're alive. Um, and it seems to carry over in a way to these near-death experiences. But... Um, they also uh, often, as far as I can tell, uh, feature a, a redemption. A, it doesn't stay in hell the entire time for the most part. Um, so this is a, a very interesting journey that he goes on. Um, it's uh, pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, it's, it's kind of a classic redemption story. And so I wanted to read it and... Um, you know, there's been a couple high-profile, uh, well-publicized suicides um, here in the United States over the past, um, you know, week or so. So I, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, people people might be reading near-death experiences for, for meaning and guidance, and there might be some of you out there who are uh, in a bad place, and I just wanted to say that, you know, um, your life matters, and if you are having trouble, uh, to get help, because um, each and every one of your lives matters and has has meaning and uh, has a purpose, so um, please uh, reach out reach out and, and get some help. Um, so, uh, you know, that this near-death experience really uh, what made me want to, to preface with that. And, you know, if, if suicide is something that um, is, is hard for you to, to hear about or to read about, then uh, this podcast might not be the one for you. But uh, I thought it was extremely fascinating. He um, has a transformative experience, um, and meets Christ and uh, the Virgin Mary, and uh, really, uh, it, it's just an incredible journey. So I will uh, kick it off here. Um, this is Jeffrey's near-death experience. Mm-hmm. 
When I was 19, I found out that my girlfriend was cheating on me with one of my best friends. So I washed down several bottles of drugs with a bottle of rum. My mom called an ambulance and I went to the hospital. Before I got there, I was out. I normally got a euphoric feeling after taking drugs, like being high or drunk. I don't know how long it was, but the next thing I know, I felt like I was in bed and slipping off of it to my left. I didn't feel drunk or foggy at all. I instinctively tried to grab on the bed and I jumped up. I was overwhelmed with panic. I saw images of a house, a jaguar car, and people that I had never seen before in my life. Immediately I was thrown back on the table. I opened my eyes and I saw a doctor on top of me, giving me a chest massage. I tried to sit back up, thinking he would move out of the way, but he didn't. Again, I went into him and saw images of his wife, kids, and his car. I felt the panic in him. It was so overwhelming and I repelled from these visions. I slammed back on the table. I was slipping to the left again and looked to the right to see my own body next to me. When I looked back to the left, I saw a flash of blue light. As I looked to the corner of the room to get a better look, I saw a column of light coming down to the floor. I heard a voice from my right say, It's alright, we'll save you. As I looked, I saw what truly looked like a blue fairy taking me by the hand. I caught a glimpse of a green light heading to my left, but it took my hand and pulled it up over my head. I couldn't see what it was because the two of them together pulled me around, upright, and off to the right side of the room in the corner. I shook them off so I could see what was going on. I saw the doctor over me trying to revive me, a nurse at my head putting an oxygen mask or something on me, and my mom in the doorway with her arms crossed. The little blue angel said, We don't have time, we have to hurry. As I began to really comprehend the situation, they took me into the column of light, and it was a trip. The motion and light seemed to make me feel a little bit sick, so I closed my eyes for a while and opened them every once in a while out of pure curiosity. I saw the proverbial stairway to heaven along the way, with someone being led up it by a dog. Eventually I saw clouds. As I tried to look over my shoulder and down to the ground, I saw a huge crowd of people standing in front of the gates of heaven. The little angels put me down just inside the gate and to the right of it in a room. I was kneeling with my eyes closed for a minute. It was so cold, and as I thought that, it stopped. I opened my eyes to see that I was in a room with cloud walls. I started to walk towards the clouds and a voice said, Don't do it. You'll regret it. You'll be lost forever. I turned back around and was pretty angry because I fully intended for dead to be dead. I was realizing that this was not what I expected. This wasn't dead. 
it was just more living in a different place. I was an arrogant, angry 19-year-old. I thought to myself, so this is heaven. At least they could have given me a bench or something to sit on. Just as I looked down to a place where I would have put one, there was a white marble bench. I thought, great, a marble bench. I bet this is going to be cold. But it wasn't. As I sat down on it, a corner of the room turned flat. The clouds started to get dark and swirl. It opened like an elevator door, and there were three figures standing there, silhouetted by a bright light. I could feel them as well as see them. One of them was my grandmother, and another one, a very old lady, said, See, I told you so, to my grandmother. The third one was a young girl who flew into the room with a joyous squeal and sat down next to me. The door closed and she asked me what happened. I'm not real good at telling my problems to people I don't know, but her compassion and caring nature seemed to bring it all out of me. She took me on several journeys. The first was like the story of Christmas Scrooge. She showed me things from my past that were significant, things that I had done that impressed people, and the things that people said that I never knew. She showed me the people that would be affected by my death, the people that would really be affected by my life. It didn't really have much effect on my selfish, arrogant, 19-year-old self. The next thing I knew, I was waking up in a grass field on a sunny day. I could hear really southern, hillbilly-sounding voices of a girl and a couple of guys. They were laughing and cutting up in a really stupid way. I tried to slowly, quietly, get up to look over the grass and see who it was. I saw a run-down old shack. As a breeze came across the grass, I caught a whiff of the phallus smell. I finally saw the people that were talking, but they weren't really people. They were wearing overalls, but they had jackal faces. They noticed me and came running over. They asked who I was and where did I come from. Just then, one of them pointed to the sky. As I looked, I saw a line appear and the sky ripped open. A giant brown creature came jumping out and landed next to me. He had horns all over his head, five or six eyes, and was cussing violently. He was not like the detailed creatures you would see in a movie. He was more like a cartoon. He smelled really bad and was really hard to listen to. His words were full of curse words and insults. I don't remember what all he said, but he grabbed me and jumped back into the hole in the sky. We landed on a platform in space with a wall of what looked like TV screens. They were actually cubes. There was a control panel like a podium. He told me this was hell, and in every cube was a custom-made hell for every soul. He explained that some people adapt to every kind of hell, and some people are more tolerant of some things than others, so hell is ever-changing. He took great joy out of watching people suffer. As I walked along the wall of cubes, I was sucked into one of them 
and found myself in a small white room with a door and a shelf. Soon the door opened and a very good-looking guy and girl walked in. They were very nice to me and asked if they could get me something. Generally in unknown situations, I don't eat or drink. It's just me. I have to be perfectly comfortable before I'll indulge myself. So I kept saying no, but they kept on bugging me about it until it became so annoying that I eventually told them, sure, a sandwich and a Coke. They left and returned with a sandwich and a Coke. I was skeptical, so I just let them sit on the shelf. Then they started to bug me to take a bite and enjoy. I finally gave in and took a bite, but I looked through it to make sure it was what I thought it was. After biting into it, I was totally repulsed by the flavor. It was so rank. I spit it out and grabbed for the Coke that was just as bad. I had to spit it out too. They laughed and laughed as I was trying to get the rank taste out of my mouth. Real funny, haha. Then they apologized and offered to get me another. I said no thanks, and they again started to convince me that they were just joking and it wouldn't happen again. I finally just stopped talking to them and began to see that they, these two good-looking people actually had jackal faces with a transparent mask or something. I realized that I could see through their masks, and this whole thing was just a way of torturing me. I was whisked up and snatched out of the cube in a whirlwind. As I left the platform, I could hear the devil screaming, No. The next thing I knew, I was being shown flashes of all the bad things I had ever done, and I was being put into the other people's shoes as I was doing bad things to them. I could see how insensitive I was to people and didn't even know it. It was excruciating and overwhelming to relive things that I had forgotten about or just didn't care about. I was made to feel the way that I made others feel. I was so cold and was shivering. I realized that I was somewhere. I opened my tear-filled eyes and found myself kneeling in a cave of some kind. It had a low ceiling and a cold, wet floor, and was very dark. I felt so alone and abandoned. I began to try to move through the cave in the dark. It was hard because I couldn't crawl without getting wet, and I couldn't stand up because the ceiling was so low. I didn't want to get wet because I was so cold. Soon, I saw an amber light ahead. I hoped that it would be warmer near this light. I could see other people near the light and found a crowd of people all kneeling at the side of an opening. I could tell there was a fire inside. I saw a girl kneeling with her wrists cut, a man with a rope around his neck, and another with the back of his head blown out. I could hear screaming from the cave ahead, and I was trying to get one of these people to talk to me and tell me where I was. One of them told me to be quiet or I would be next. Then a huge, ugly demon reached out of the cave, grabbed them, and dragged them into the cave. I became worried that I would be next. I knelt down. As I closed my eyes, I was overwhelmed again 
with visions and emotions of all the bad things in my life. I opened my eyes and realized that I could not close them unless I wanted this to happen. I looked around and realized that this is why everyone looked like a bunch of zombies. You cannot close your eyes. You cannot talk to others. You cannot stand up. You cannot sit down. You can only kneel there on the tips of your toes and the points of your knees. All you could do was stare at the hole of fire, listen to the screams, and hope you are not next. I saw a man in a robe who was about 40 years old with a trimmed beard and a balding head. I thought he looked like a monk and wondered to myself if this was Judas. After a long time, my eyes began to burn badly. I finally decided that it was worth it to put up with the bad flashes if I could just close my eyes for a while. I began to sob quietly as the flashes of my evil ways rushed in and I heard a voice. It said, If you ask him, maybe he will save you. I thought to myself, How? The voice said, Say it. Say the words. Jesus Christ, my Savior in heaven, please save me. I said the words out loud. The voice said, Again. And so I said it again, and again, and again. The screaming stopped and then the flashes stopped. It was silent. As I looked up, I saw a man sitting in a giant stone chair. There was a silver-winged creature next to him who had a helmet with wings on it. There was a woman on his left. She had some very old men behind her. We were on a platform in space, but the stars were eyes instead. I realized that this was Jesus and the creature on his right was the angel of the Lord, and the woman on his left was the Blessed Virgin Mary. I can only guess that the old men had to be Abraham, Moses, or one of those important people. Maybe the disciples, Peter, Paul, or someone. Jesus had a look of disappointment on his face that touched me to my soul and made me feel so ashamed. The angel of the Lord said, Tell our Lord what brings you here. I began to explain that I felt that the world was not a fair place, and I didn't want to be part of it anymore. He looked at me as if I was crazy and asked, Who told you it was going to be a fair world? I really didn't understand. The girl that I first met in heaven swooped in and whisked me away to a great hall that was kind of dark. We were at a great doorway. As I asked her where we were, she told me that she had something to show me. The door opened and a bunch of people came out. I saw a group of priests that I recognized from another religious experience I had had at Versailles when I was just a child. I had a brief flashback of that experience. As the room emptied, we went in. It was dark, and there was a great round table with a three-dimensional display in the middle of the universe. There was an old man. As she brought me to him, he asked, And why are you here? The girl explained that I felt that life had treated me badly and thought it was unfair. He thought that this was preposterous that I would think such a thing, 
and in short began to explain that the globe on the table was the universe, and that all the stars had meanings, and their arrangements had meanings. When people are born, the arrangement of stars in the universe has an effect on them and the life that they would lead. He explained that heaven was a safe place where souls are protected and taken care of by the Lord. Everyone has their own status, and that status is determined by what you have done and learned in the material worlds. He explained that people are rarely happy with where they are for long, and that they are always longing to move forward. The souls in heaven are no different. He explained that I came to this council begging to be born into the material world. He explained that I presented them with a very well thought out case, and that I employed the help of many wise people to determine exactly where and when I was to be born and who I would be born to. I chose my own name for a very distinct reason, and if there is anybody to blame for the life I'm living, it is myself. He explained that I entered into a contract with the Creator, and I must live up to that contract or face the consequences. He ended the whole speech telling me that I knew what I was getting into, I knew the risks and complications, and that I had been warned. My only choice was to go back and finish what I started. I didn't get a word in edgewise. For me, at 19 years of age, this didn't really go over very well. I thought he was just a mean old man with a bad attitude, especially since he ran us out of the room and slammed the door on us. I found myself back on the platform before Jesus. The Blessed Mother asked what I thought of what I learned. I told her that I thought it wasn't right that I had to put up with people hurting me, that Jesus was supposed to protect me, and if I was going to go back, that I wanted him to make it right. He looked at me and said, My son, I cannot cause pain to another. I can only heal those who are broken. With the arrogance of youth, I tried to pull the whole I want to talk to the manager routine and demanded to talk to God. The Blessed Mother said, You cannot see God. Jesus spoke up and said, No one can see God. The Blessed Mother was angry and told me to kneel before this great healer and ask forgiveness. I knelt down. I could feel the great disappointment and astonishment at my arrogance. I began to weep, and Jesus asked, Do you know why I saved you from the pit of purgatory? I replied, No. He said, Remember the old man, the one you thought was Judas? This showed me that you believe, you truly believe. I realized at that moment that Jesus was with me and had been with me the whole time. He was always with me throughout everything that has happened, and my belief means way more than I ever had realized. He saw something in me that I even did not see. I began to weep so badly that I was frozen there on the floor with my head in my hands and crying uncontrollably. The Blessed Mother ordered me to come forward and kiss his feet. It was like trying to crawl with a block of concrete on my back. If you could measure it in time, it took me a whole five minutes to crawl five feet. 
When I got to his feet, I saw that they were dirty and well-worn, like a person that had never worn shoes and had walked everywhere they went their whole life. I would have rather kissed a baboon's ass than these feet, with yellow split toenails. But I did kiss them. After I did, I could feel myself being pulled back to the material world, and I cried out that I wanted to stay. Jesus said, Give me a chance. Give me a chance to make it right in the end. I thought, great. In the end, that means it will all be screwed up until I die. In the end, when will that be? I think it was the Mother Mary who then gave me a message. It was a very compressed message that had words, pictures, and emotions rolled up in one. I was shown a vision of future events that have mostly come true. These were things no one could have predicted. As I entered the tunnel to return, I saw a vision of a circle with an eye in the middle, and as it turned I could see scenes around it like a clock of people and places, all moving at once. I realized that this was God, and I had been allowed by Him to see Him in the only way I could understand. It was a great comfort to be given that image even though Jesus himself said I could not see God. The feeling I had when I realized that Jesus was there with me all along, I now had been given that feeling from God himself, and I went peacefully. As I entered my body again, I could feel my heart beat. I felt the pain, the warmth, and the uncomfortable feeling of having laid in one spot for a long time. I could not respond in any way, and was in a coma for three days after. I occupied my mind by going over the events again and again, because I felt like I might forget. At one time, I felt a warm hand in mine, and I struggled to open my eyes to see who it was. I saw a young girl with long brown hair standing next to my bed and holding my hand. When I woke up, I asked the nurse who she was and where did she go. She looked so surprised when I described her, but then explained that there were no young girls in the intensive care unit, and no one had been allowed beyond the glass in three days. The only people had been the same four ladies in 12-hour shifts, and they all had worked there for years. I thought this might be a dream, but she explained to me that I had died for six minutes, and I had been in the intensive care unit for three days. Okay, so here, um, the owner of the site, uh, nderf.org, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Long, uh, asked a follow-up question, um, which I will re read briefly, and then we'll uh, read his response, and uh, his story will be over, and we'll talk about it. Okay, so uh, here is Dr. Long's um, question. Any further comments that you have on this would be greatly appreciated. Do you have an idea about what Jesus meant when he said, This showed me that you believe, you truly believe. Believe what? Do you have a sense of what would have happened if you had not believed? Thanks again for sharing one of the most remarkable near-death experiences ever shared with NDERF. Kindest regards, Jeffrey Long, MD. And here is the reply from Jeffrey. 
In this event, I was confused at the time because I didn't understand how the all-seeing, all-knowing Lord of this world could not know already that I believed. First clue. I think he saw a small pinhole ray of light inside a very dark soul. I wasn't talking to him, trying to convince him that I believed. I was having what I thought was a private thought. He gathered his proof not from my words, but as a voyeur. Second clue. He wanted to show me that he was there in my private thoughts. My question at the time, if he can see my private thoughts, then how did he not know? Solution. The answer is he did know. His point was that he wanted to see it. In short, I don't think there was an ultimatum. With age, I understand why God is viewed as a father. So with a father's perspective in mind, I believe it's best described by the saying, when your kids are teens, you know they love you. You just wish that they would show it now and again. If God wants me to believe, he will make me. There are no atheists in foxholes. He will drive me to the point of suicide, snatch me up into his living room, make a believer out of me, and then send me back. There is no discussion of if you believe this or if you don't do that. I could not deny a hurricane when it is at my back door. The most profound thing God has ever told me is a long story, but in his words, sometimes you have to let people fail on their own. Sometimes you can give advice, warn a person, beg and plead with them, but this only causes resentment. The only way that they are going to learn or to realize that you only have their best interest in mind is to let them fail. Then be there to help pick up the pieces. There were no I told you so's. Okay, so that was Jeffrey's near-death experience. Um, it brought up a lot of things that um, I found interesting and I found compelling. First, it's it's one of the, um, uh, I guess, one of the best representations of a hellish near-death experience that I've I've read thus far. Um, I haven't really. They're pretty rare as far as most of these near-death experiences that I've read go. I mean, um, it might be like 10% have a hellish element. Um, and so I was reading through a couple hellish near-death experiences, and it's, it's um, you know, I don't want to generalize, but it seems that most of the experiences that have a hellish element... Um, the person is in, um, how should I say, extreme, uh, emotional pain or, or, uh, or having extreme trauma at the time of their passing or their experience. It seems like these hellish, uh, near-death experiences come out of uh, extreme emotional pain, um, heartbreak, um, self-loathing, anger, all these negative emotions kind of wrapped up right when the, the person passes. Or 
um, when someone sees uh, how their actions have affected other people. Um, sometimes in near-death experiences, they'll during a life review or, or whatever you want to call it, when they're going through what someone has done with their life, they'll experience a lot of uh, negative emotion as they see the consequences of their actions, and and that certainly happens in in this one. Um, it's it's kind of it's got this classic element of the the arrogant kind of youth who who thinks the world should be his way um getting confronted with an overwhelming reality of that's not how it works um he it's kind of the whole arc of the story is he's he's getting humbled um he uh he's, he mentions multiple times how arrogant he was how he thinks the world isn't fair, this life isn't fair, and at several key moments throughout the story, he's shown that, listen, this is what you signed up for. Um, this is exactly what you wanted, and um, this is how life goes. And he's also shown what I suspect is is how his arrogance and his blindness has made his life worse by the way he's treated other people. Um it's there's kind of a self-inflicted nature to it, and and this um, really rings home to me as far as I I don't know if I've mentioned before, but especially nowadays, and and it's kind of in the cultural milieu of this idea of victimhood, and um, it seems to me that even if you are a victim, and we're all victims of something, I mean, that's just part and parcel of the experience of of living but even if you are a victim of something terrible it doesn't seem psychologically healthy or healthy to your soul or however you want to, to frame it to see yourself as a victim um it it seems like it's it's just a pathway to all these negative emotions is if you embrace that victimhood, the oh poor me, the world has been tough. It's I mean even if it has, I mean, people get screwed, you know, a million ways to Sunday, and you know there are some awful things that happen to people. It's just amazing that you know our world is functioning to the degree that it is, but um, it doesn't seem like that victim mentality is healthy for your soul or your psyche or who you are. It it leads down bad roads. Um, and so this whole story was kind of a, a getting him to realize through various different experiences and um, uh, different trials and things like that. Now, there were several, several things that came up to me um, since I've been re- reading a lot of uh, Carl Jung with the idea of archetypes and the idea of uh, there being objective, evolved figures and forms and characters and patterns in our imagination, in our psyche, in our soul, if you want to call it that. And, and one of the things that stood out to me was that he saw the, uh, I guess, the devils, minions, henchmen, whatever, as jackals. Um, and 
Now, this I have not extensively researched this, but um, just a cursory glance at Wikipedia showed me that um, the jackal, I mean, has been a very important figure in several different uh, contexts of different religions, different cultures and societies throughout time. Um, let me just list a couple of them here. Uh, oh, there's the Egyptian god Anubis, who was a jackal-headed god who was associated with afterlife um, and and uh, mummification. Um, it says here the... Uh, Jackal is mentioned roughly 14 times in the Bible. It is frequently used as a literary device to illustrate desolation, loneliness, abandonment, with reference to its habit of living in the ruins of former cities and other areas abandoned by humans. Um, And, of course, jackals and coyotes are often uh, depicted in kind of native uh, indigenous uh, religions as uh, uh, tricksters, uh, clever magicians and sorcerers. Um, so I thought, sorry. So I thought it was very interesting that that was the image that came up for him um, as he was having uh, this hellish turn to his experience, where he's he was first in the behind the pearly gates, and um, then he gets transported after this uh, kind of uh, what do you call it? Uh, Charles Dickens' uh, Scrooge story of seeing his past and stuff. He gets transported to um, to this field, and there are these jackals that are laughing and 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 kind of joking around. And and then he says a cartoonish devil kind of breaks open the sky and pulls him in, and um, that's where his hell experience kind of starts. Um, and the jackals are tricking him in his little room by giving him what he wants, but it's actually, uh, you know, a sandwich and a Coke that tastes awful and a terrible taste, and they laugh at him and say, oh, oh sorry, we'll get you the real thing this time. And it kind of reminded me, now, again, I haven't researched this as heavily as I would like to, but um, just kind of a, the brief things that I've read about... Um, the uh, the accounts of people's the uh, schizophrenic uh, voices that people hear when people have schizophrenia, um, some of the bad ones have kind of a jeering, insulting, laughing uh, kind of attitude, tricking. Um, so I found that I don't know what to do with that. It was just an observation, um, but I found that a little bit interesting. Um, and then, although th- that experience doesn't sound too terrible, I mean, it's kind of, you know, like they say, words are always a lacking when talking about near-death experiences. It, it doesn't seem too bad, but once he realizes that they're not going to um, appease his desires, whatever it is, he gets sucked out of it. And then... Apparently, he ends up in purgatory. Now, this sounds really bad. It's it's kind of the way he describes it. It's cold and dark. You know, it's it's not the fire and brimstone. It's it's the coldness and and uh, discomfort. And um, people can't close their eyes, or they are confronted by their deeds. I mean, this is clearly uh, depicting something that's trying to get him to realize 
or everybody in, the, in there to realize their own sins, if you will, or their own um, evil that they've perpetrated uh, consciously or not into the world. And so he's, and people are getting picked off to get pulled down into a, a pit, I suppose. And um, he, as he, once he looks at what he's done, once he, clo- it's kind of confusing the, the way it's written, but apparently it's like, you can't close your eyes unless, if you close your eyes, you will see the terrible things you've done. It's like, that's the default, and that's all you get to see. At least that's what I understood from from reading this. Um, and once he is able to stomach that and look at what he's done to incorporate evil, um, then he is on the road to redemption. It's There's a voice that says, maybe you can be saved if you ask, um, ask for Jesus to save you. Now, the, I think this is a very crucial uh, idea, and it's one that is echoed in Jungian psychology as well, the idea of incorporating your shadow. That to first to get to heaven, you have to understand the evil that is inside you, that you've done, make it conscious. Um, a lot of times we walk, you know, we cruise through life and we're worried about ourselves and, you know, we'll do things that we might not see how they affect others. And um, the idea that's critical is to is to uh, wake up enough to see the evil that you've done and your capacity for evil. To understand that you um, are human and humans are ter- are capable of terrible things and that you know, with, if the right levers are pulled and the right situation happens, if you aren't conscious of what you're capable of, it can come out of you, even the worst, most terrible things. And so once he realizes what he's done, once he's humbled himself, then he has the ability of redemption. Um, and, and, kind of, and then he finds himself on uh, a platform between or before Christ, uh, an angel, and uh, uh, the Virgin Mary. And one of the reasons that I wanted to do a uh, hellish near-death experience is to try to um, try to approach the idea of totality. You know, with near-death experiences and... Um, these any spiritual uh, experience or drug trip or stuff, there's a tendency to um, kind of, uh, I guess, put it in a light that's all, you know, rainbows and ecstasy and I felt so good and I met my, you know, there's, there's lots of really good feel-good emotions associated with, with it, even though it is kind of a, you know, super intense experience and and life-changing, but it, it tends to get used in a way that is kind of uh, only seeing the positive. And I think it's important to um, to keep an idea of the totality of, of the human experience and the divine. Um, that's something that many mythologies and um, religions include, is that 
you know, God is great, but God is terrible too. It depends on the situation. And um, this totality, uh, kind of symbol of totality is, is important to keep in mind. So you don't become too one-sided in your, in your outlook on things that bad things are going to happen. And um, that's just as much an experience of the divine as the good things that happen. And if you use that mindset, then that is an antidote toward, toward, um, to the victim mentality that, um, as this near-death experience spells out, can be so corrosive and so, um, you know, soul-destroying. Um, and to kind of sum that up is, is when, when he is about to go back to his material body after he's kind of humbled himself literally by kissing the, the nasty feet of Jesus, according to him, um, <laughs> uh, he, he's told he can't see God and no one can see God. And um, that echoes at least an idea that God is so transcendent that there's nothing that you could distinguish that is not God from something that is God, that God is, um, there's nothing you can say about God that the opposite is not also true. This is something that keeps coming up in, in readings I've been doing of, of um, Jung and the, these older uh, Christian philosophers and, and other, you know, Hindu uh, philosophy as well, that, um, and uh, also the um, Taoists, that God is, is something that can't be bottled into something. It's it's like infinity. It's like you know, it's everything, and it's nothing at the same time. It's it's the union of the opposites, and um, and but as after he's humbled himself and he's going back, he's permitted to see an image of God. Now he says kind of interestingly that he's allowed to see it in a way that he can understand it. And I think that's the key phrase. It's like, okay, you you couldn't possibly understand the entire infinite transcendent being, but here's an image that represents it. And it is a, a circle with an eye in it and surrounded by, um, he says, people and places and scenes moving around it. And this symbol, um, while I don't know, it, I'm kind of going based on how he describes it, um, seems to me to be similar to other um, uh, other symbols of the divine um, throughout history, such as the uh, such as the uh, circle dot symbol, which. Um, has cropped up in many different forms. It's literally just a circle and then a dot in the middle. And um, this has been used to represent the sun. It's been used to represent gold. It's been, uh, in uh, Chinese script, it's been also represents the sun and a day. Um, it is similar to the, uh, the symbol that's supposed to ward off the evil eye, that nazar, I believe it's called. I don't know how to pronounce it, but... Um, it's this is kind of a symbol that is cropped up in many different places, which um, just strikes me as a 
another kind of evidence of the objective nature of these experiences that they're all different, but they have certain figures and, and representations that crop up independent, independently of someone's culture or background. I mean, they've, um, and, and essentially I think it's a, a symbol of, of consciousness, the eye itself. It's, it's being able to see, it's being able to, um, tell things apart. It's being able to pull things together. The eye is, is symbolizing conscious consciousness in a way. And I think that would be supported by the fact that there are, um, you know, people and scenes and places moving around it. Um, and it's, and it's, it's kind of the summation of his, his journey in a way. It's becoming conscious of, of what he's been. He tried to essentially, essentially run from his consciousness. I mean, he, I, I don't know if you want to say that could be symbolically running from God. I mean, poetically, perhaps. Um, he, he tried to, you know, take a bunch of pills and drink a whole bottle of rum and become unconscious. And he, it was a suicide attempt. And this attempt was, made him have this journey and this is the the thing i want to end on is is his last uh response to uh dr long the follow-up question is is how he how he kind of presented it as look this was this was going to happen this was uh i didn't have a choice it was objective it was um he said he couldn't ignore a hurricane outside his window. Um, he said God, God could have done that to him, had him go through this experience to make him a believer. It was it was a forced kind of thing. He, it happened to him, and he didn't really have a say in it. It was it's. A very strange way of, of putting it that that God God <laughs> knowingly like forced him to become a believer by what he was shown and and what happened and that he was essentially saved from himself um, by humbling himself and of course I'm going to add the caveat of I don't take these near-death experiences as proof of any transcendent or metaphysical existence. I only take them as the, the uh, evidence of, of the human capacity to have a divine, an empirically divine experience, I suppose, that someone is capable of experiencing a divine transformative experience. And that's something that I don't think you can write off to, to uh, you know, just a dying brain and chemistry per, per se, because it's got such, it's got a story. I mean, it's got, <laughs> it's got, um, you know, the classic, the proud being brought low and, finding salvation. I mean, that's, 
I, I mean, I suppose that it could be rooted, of course, in, in some kind of physical capacity, which it must be because we're physical beings and there's, there's something to it. But it, it's still a divine experience. Now, of course, there's all the questions of, of how trustworthy it is, and it apparently happened in, in 1989, so it's a ways back, but it's, um, you know, I think at the, at the root of it, it's spirit and matter um, working in a way to make, to save somebody or to, to show them something that is beyond themselves. Uh, it's definitely a humbling experience, and like I said, I'm. It's got these uh, traditional Christian figures, um, but I think the one thing that near death ex- near death experiences show us is that there are many different forms that these these uh, beings can take. Um, and I think it's just what the person needs. But these forms, although they have different, they're different forms in each one, but the patterns are still the same in all of them. There's this one you have a tunnel of light, a life experience, or a life review. Um, you have telepathic communication. He mentions that his thoughts, he thought they were private, but that Jesus responded to them. You have. Um, all the classic kind of near-death experience phenomena or features, if you will. And the fact that they, they have features that appear somewhat regularly. Um, he got to see his own body. He was kind of sucked, sucked out of his body, and he looked at the doctor, and he felt the doctor's emotions and stuff, and saw his house and his wife at... Um, these are things that many of these experiences share. And like I said, even though they have different content, they share similar patterns. And that makes me suspect that these patterns are something that are beyond our material being. And these patterns are true in a way that that physical reality um, can't necessarily measure or, or or capture it's it's something that's within us and the fact that that like i said that many people experience these and you know they have similar patterns it's just i i don't see how you can necessarily use this as a proof of anything of um proof of a particular religion because it seems like all religions have have a validity as they're expressed in these experiences and i just think that does that goes a long way in um maybe pulling us together more than pulling us apart you know the more we can understand that we all have a spiritual path or and a physical path that we are going through the world and um, we might have different paths from each other, but they perhaps lead to the same place. And I, I find that very comforting. So now uh, we're going to wrap up the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Um, 
If you want to kind of follow along with the podcast on social media, you can uh, find Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences on Facebook. Uh, you can shoot me an email at samreedsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. And if you want to follow me along in my daily life, you can uh, follow me on Instagram at the Timberlion. Um, so thank you so much for listening. I hope you got something out of this. Um, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, so I will uh, be back here in a week or two with another one. And to leave you now, I am going to read a quote um, which I felt summed up this podcast pretty well. Um, it is a quote from Carl Jung. Uh, I know I tend to talk a lot about him, but um, I think it is particularly uh, well-suited for, for this near-death experience. It is, No tree, it is said, can grow to heaven unless its roots reach down to hell. <laughs>